You're listening to Along the Narrow Way, a podcast that walks you through books of the Bible verse by verse to help you dig into God's Word so you can walk along the narrow way with Christ more faithfully. Hosted by Pastor Will Russell and co-hosted by Jimmy Miller. Join them as they help us understand the Bible so we can walk more faithfully as disciples of Jesus. By God's grace through faith in Him that this can be acquired. Eternal life, this personal interaction, relationship with God is through Him. And so that pretty much, now it's not covering everything, but that pretty much covers up the prayer He was offering in regard to Himself to the Father. That's the first uh, few verses there, about the first three verses or so, first four verses. Um, Then he moves into praying for his immediate disciples, those 11 guys who were there with him. And as he begins to pray over them or for them, he reveals some other truths, the reality that he has imparted the truth of God to them, and he has called them out of the world. They're distinct and called out unto him, imparted with the truth. They are beginning to piece this together and make something out of it. Jesus points out that um, these disciples, they believed the words of Jesus, particularly that he was giving the word of God and that he was from God. They had that belief. They, and, and you remember, Jimmy, it used the phrase this way. It says they received They received the word. And that's such an important thing. They received the words of Jesus. They accepted the word. They acted upon the word. They considered it authoritative and authentic. And that's who they considered Jesus to be. They received Jesus. They received his word. They accepted his divine origin. That's revealed through this prayer. Um, The fact that um, Jesus came from the Father, he was sent by the Father, to perform an atoning work among humanity. Jesus touches upon that here. Um, Another aspect of this prayer where he's praying for his disciples reveals his intercessory work, the fact that he's interceding. And you remember, he very pointedly said he intercedes for those who are his followers, who have received him, but not for the world that's rejected him. Um, He spoke in terms of speaking to the Father, all that are yours are mine, all that is mine is yours. The reality that to know Christ is to know God, to know God is to know Christ, and you don't know God if you don't know Christ. That's all culminated in this prayer. Um, He makes this statement in this prayer that I'm no longer in the world. Now, obviously, he was in the world. He's sitting right there in front of them. But remember, that statement is indicating, it's, it's, it's foreshadowing the reality that his betrayal and crucifixion were at hand. The culmination of his ministry, they're at that point. When chapter 17 closes and you open up chapter 18, it happens. It's right there. Um, He calls God Holy Father. The only time that phraseology is used that way, and it's used by Christ right here. He's acknowledging the holiness of God and the, the expectation of holiness within the life of his followers. He asked the Father to keep them, to guard them, mainly spiritually. We know they all were persecuted and suffered physically. Um, They were martyred for their faith eventually in various ways, but the Father was guarding them spiritually. Um, He wanted them to be one as 
he and the father were one. They, he was praying for their spiritual unity with one another. He mentioned how he had been guarding them this whole time, but now he was commending them over to the guardianship of the father. Um, he told them, hey, I speak these words openly to you. You know, um, I want you to know I'm making intercession for you and you are placed under the guardianship of the father. You're kept by his power and his holiness. And the, the point he said of that was that you might have joy that you might know my joy, that you might experience my joy. Joy vested in Jesus, joy from Jesus, joy that is expressed by him in his followers. And so that was part of that prayer. Um, he indicated that he had given God's word because he is the incarnate word of God, word come in flesh. And so as he spoke the word, he was speaking the true, authentic Word of God because He is the Word of God, and that's what He was there to reveal. The world rejected Him. They hated Him. They hated His words, and the same was true of His disciples, He said. They had received the Word. They believed the Word. They acted upon the Word, and now the world would reject them just as they rejected Christ. Um, the reality was, He said, they were not of the world, just as He was not of the world. They were born from above, born spiritually, called out of the world. Um, so Jesus prayed that the Father would keep them from the evil one, that he would guard them, that Satan might be powerless before God, that he would limit the access and degree to which Satan might afflict them. Once again, more of a spiritual guardianship there. Um, and he says the disciples were set apart. They were being sanctified. He said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so he prayed for their sanctification, that they would be empowered by the Spirit to go into the world because he said, I'm sending them. As you have sent me, Father, I send them into the world. And so he's sending the disciples into the world. And he's praying that they might be sanctified, ready to go into the world, to carry out the work of the kingdom, to accomplish that which he's sending them to. And then he makes the statement that for this to happen, he's going to sanctify himself. In other words, I'm setting myself apart to obey the redemptive will of God the Father. I will be dying upon the cross as a supreme sacrifice for sin. I will allow this to happen. I have power to lay down my life, he said earlier, and I have power to take it up again. I'm sanctifying myself that you might be sanctified, set apart for the kingdom, and have this eternal life, this deep, meaningful life ongoing personal relationship with God. So that sums up the prayer, and I skipped over a lot of stuff in that, but to that point, that's what we studied. That's right. <laughs> Anything you want to add to that or throw out there, Jimmy? All I have to say is you can see a, a good image of the Trinity at work together here. You, you, see the, you see Jesus, you see the Son doing His work, you see the Father doing His work, you see being guarded, you know, that's mm -hmm. all the characteristics of of what the Holy Spirit does in our life mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So I think you see a good indication of Trinity. The character of God is throughout the scriptures. Yeah. And if you study it openly and look, he's there. And you can see the Trinity revealed all throughout the scriptures. It's just, it's so wonderful. Yeah, people like, you know, you don't see that word Trinity, but you have to see it's implied mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In, in the nature of God. Mm -hmm. He has these characteristics that are trying. That's right. So, so that's right. So that's the best I can 
That's no. what I get out of that right there. Well, good Some point. There's a lot you get out of that, but that's one of the things. That's a good little nugget. Well, good point. I appreciate that. All right, so now we're up to where we let off. Let's pick up here verse 20 of chapter 17. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it. That the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Here the prayer transitions once again. He's now praying over another group. He's prayed over himself. He's prayed over his disciples there, the 11 who are with him. Um, and now he's praying over another distinct group. I do not pray for these alone, these guys right here, but also for those who will believe in me. Now that's an interesting statement because he just got through saying he wouldn't pray for the world. Mm -hmm. He's praying for those who will trust him. Now, that mm -hmm. might sound like he's contradicting himself a little bit right there. No, mm -hmm. he's showing his foreknowledge mm -hmm. and how he knows the hearts. He knows who's going to come to him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this part really humbles me, you know, that he's already praying for me, you, and all of us before you even are thought of. Mm -hmm. He's already thought of us right here. Absolutely. That's just what I love about this part right here. Absolutely. So the Lord in his omniscience looks through the future and prays for those who will come to faith. He's praying for the church that will form. The church will come to be on the day of Pentecost, the, the body of born-again believers that will form to follow him, to, to carry out the Great Commission. He's praying. He's praying for us. Yes. He, he, you know, he's directing his prayers to those who will come to faith all throughout history from this point forward. He's praying over them. Now, let's point this out, though. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe. They'll believe in me through their word. That's the word of the apostles. And so he's indicating the, just the immense role that these disciples are fixing to play. Because he's praying for future believers who are going to believe. Why? Because of their word, because of what the disciples are going to speak, what they're going to share, what they're going to say and do. And so Jesus is praying over a, a, a family of future believers, a, a body of future believers, a church of future believers that are going to come to be because of the word the disciples will speak. They're the first to preach the gospel after the ascension of Christ. They're the first to be adamant about sharing the gospel wherever they go. Uh, 
They started the churches. They sent the missionaries. They were utilized to be the authors of the New Testament primarily. These guys here are really, they're not the cornerstone, that's Jesus, but they're a big stone in the foundation of the church. Without them being faithful to the kingdom call they had, this prayer isn't possible. And so you see just the, really the, I want to use the word debt, but that's not really the right word. We're not indebted to them, but the dependence maybe our faith has on these men having been faithful throughout that first century. If they had not been, Christianity doesn't go very far. And so that's another That's just another proof, though, for the authenticity of who Jesus is, the reality of his death, his burial, his resurrection, that these guys were so committed that they spread Christianity. These, of course, um, Matthias was added to them. There were 12 eventually again. But these small group of people infected the world. That's right. You know, um, they wouldn't have done that if this wasn't real. If Jesus wasn't the real Messiah who hadn't really resurrected from the dead and, and come to walk again, but these guys did. I mean, they, they turned the world upside down. They really did. You don't just talk another Jewish person into mm-hmm. giving up the, the Juda, Judaism and right. stuff like that. They just don't do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there has to be some pretty solid proof, you know. That's right. I'm not calling them hard-headed or anything like that. I'm just saying they're, they're, they're mm-hmm. faithful in their ways once they get there, you know. Mm-hmm. But so, you know. You can see that why Jesus would choose such men because he knows that if he can just shift their focus onto him and make that, that faith, put that faith in the right place, they can do a lot. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's pick up here with verse 21. So he's praying for us. He's praying for future believers who come to faith because of the work of these disciples who we call apostles, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe you sent me. So Jesus prayed for spiritual unity among those original disciples, but here now he's praying for a spiritual unity to be the cornerstone, the characteristic, the guiding principle of the church that will come. The believers to come, he's praying that they will be united spiritually, have a spiritual unity, not be disbanded in in a myriad of groups that argue about theology, not people who get cross over this doctrine or that doctrine, not even individual groups who squabble within themselves, but there would be a spirit of unity within these believers. And the reason he states that the world may believe you sent me for the world to know that I am the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. For that to happen, there needs to be a spiritual unity among the believers. When we lose our spiritual unity, we lose our effective witness among the lost. We lose our effective testimony in the world. And we lose our power in going and sharing the gospel because we're so fractured and splintered on all this other stuff. We're not united in the gospel. And so Jesus prays here for a spirit of unity to permeate future believers, the church as a whole. And so we see just the importance Peter's going to write about it. Paul's going to write so much about it, about unity within the church. Time and again, these guys in their epistles are going to write and encourage unity, admonish the church to be focused on unity. 
And they will use the term unity of the spirit. Well, that's what Jesus was praying for, to be unified in the spirit of who he is and what he's called us to do. We get way too caught up in things that don't really matter. We get consumed with petty things. They seem important to us, but when you put them in the perspective of eternity and the kingdom as a whole, they really are petty. And so, so much of of the petty things of the church really should be set aside so that we can be unified spiritually in the spirit to go perform and carry out the Great Commission. So Jesus is praying for unity there. Then he goes on, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. He imparts to us divine glory. Glory. Glory that was imparted to him that he imparts to us. I personally believe that's a reference to the divine source of life. There's only one source of eternal life, and that is Jesus Christ. He imparts it. Why? Because the Father gave him the position and the authority to impart it. We're imparted with divine glory when we walk in eternal life because only a divine, glorious God can impart eternal life. And so he has imparted that to us. We have a divine nature in him and through him. We are transformed into a new creation is what Paul says there in 2 Corinthians. That is this glorious life and nature imparted by Christ. The reality that you could be transformed, that the old could pass away and all things could become new. That's a glorious work of Jesus Christ in your life. That's eternal life. That's eternal life. And he's praying and pointing out, that's what I pray they grasp because I've given it to them. I hope they can grasp this is what you have. And so he's done that. And he prays that over us. I'm going to keep going. Chime in there, Jimmy. It just kind of emphasizes when he says, I'll put my life into you. He's putting his eternal life into you Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. I just love that. Well, Paul talks about how we're crucified with Christ. We're buried with him in baptism. We're raised to walk in newness of life as he was raised. We're, we are identified with the life of Christ. It is his divine power that gives life and his life in us. Um, Paul also said that it wasn't him who lived, it was Christ in him who lived. It is the divine life of Jesus imparted in us. That's, that's the glory here. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. And once again, he goes back to this, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And so once again, a call for unity, a call for uh, uh, portraying and living out this glorified life and state. Why? That the world will know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ sent from heaven, that he brings the love of God, that the people who follow him have God's love within them. And so there's purpose behind what he's praying. There's, it's not just let me have them blessed. It's let me see them blessed that they might bless others, particularly the world who needs to know me. That's right. And so there's a bigger ramification there. It goes back to the abiding in that love. Mm-hmm. Abiding in my love. Abiding in my love. He's beat that into their heads. That's right, he has. Abiding my love because this is where he was going with it. Right? That's a good point. You're exactly right. Very good. Verse 24. Oh, this is my favorite verse. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, 
that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Well, Jimmy, I'm going to let you go first. Go ahead. I mean, well, you know, his desire is for us to be with him, you know, and and, and for, for, for us to be a part of his glory. Not just to see it, but to be in his glory with him. You know, not that we're being glorified as some deity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're, just, we're glorified with Christ, glorified in his love and stuff like that. And that we'll, that, that, that there's not, this, this is not all there is to life. You know, there's, there's, there's something to look forward to, being with God, you know, and knowing that you're loved by him, that he's loved you since the foundation of the world. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's why I love this verse. So we see a clear indication of how you see, um, I guess, a, a, a measuring stick, a litmus test, a proof, an evidence of the love of Christ. His love is revealed in a desire. And that desire is that his followers be with him in his eternal presence. He has a desire. In other words, he's put in all this effort. He's given all that he could give. He literally died to call us to salvation, to give us eternal life. And now he has this great desire that you would be in his presence throughout eternity. It's not just a, well, it'd be nice if it would happen. It'd be kind of neat if I ran into that guy. No, it's a, it's a drive. I want it. I, I need it. His desire is that his followers would know his presence, enjoy his presence, be in his presence throughout eternity. And to do that is to be in his divine glory, the glory that is rightfully his. No one in this world... No Bible scholar, no theologian, no how profound in their intellect and understanding of Scripture can even come close to getting a glimpse of the true glory of Christ. We will not get it until this happens. When we're in His presence and His glory is truly revealed. I don't think we even have words to come close to approaching what that might be. But His desire is that where He is, we might be also. And we might behold this glory, His full glory. You know, uh, there in Thessalonians, Paul says that when, we, when we're with him, we'll be able to see him just as he is. That's when we behold his glory, when we're with him. That is in his eternal presence. That's when we behold the glory of Christ. He was transfigured there on the Mount of Transfiguration. None of us got to see that. He did a lot of profound miracles that we get to read about. But his true Nature as God, His full glory, we're not going to know it until we're in His presence. And so there is more than just this world. There, there is more than just what we experience, and there's so much to look forward to. Growing love, you know, that's what we're experiencing right now is just the love of Christ. You know, mm-hmm. we, I mean, if He didn't love us, He'd already done took us out because you know we see what's going on in the world. I'm not going to get into all that. Yeah, but, yeah. Know, and everything. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a desire, though. I love his desire. Yeah. You know, and if people always want to know what what is what does God want to do with me? What is what is his purpose? What is his purpose for me? Well, his purpose is for for you to desire him because he desires you. There you go. You know, and that's just that that's it. He desired the purpose for you is him desiring that you be with him. That's mm-hmm. the purpose. That's the whole reason why this has all happened because he desires you to be with him. Very good. Very good. Two more verses here. 
Verse 25, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. So verse 25, Jesus is beginning to close his prayer here. He's, he's, he's kind of putting the salutation on his prayer. And he indicates here, now let me direct your focus to who we're addressing. And this is the righteous father. And I think he uses that terminology purposefully. He's addressed the Father many times. We've seen it through the Gospel of John. Many times has he addressed the Father. Here, I think he's deliberate in calling him righteous Father to indicate God in his complete righteousness, righteous in every way, is completely righteous to follow through on what has been offered in prayer. In God's righteousness, he is not going to ignore, forget, or just forsake what his son has offered up. He's completely righteous in this. And so Jesus is, is kind of reemphasizing what he's already done for these guys. He's already said, look, I'm going to be interceding for you constantly. You're going to be under the Holy Father's protection. And now he's bringing them back to, and this is the righteous God who in his righteousness will not forsake you, will not forget his promise, will not turn from his word. He is completely holy trustworthy, faithful. He's righteous. So now we got Holy Father, we got Righteous Father. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just the description. Doesn't, there's no evil in God. No, not People a bit. like, why does God let this happen? Why would he let us? That's so evil. Well, God's still, well, he's still calling righteous. Mm-hmm. Even though he knows all this stuff that's fixing to happen, he doesn't consider God evil for having to do it. It's mm-hmm. a righteous act. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. He points out here that the world... The world does not know God, therefore does not receive his special care, his special concern, his special intercession. Um, that's, what, that's that phrase, the world has not known you, but I have known you and these have known you. So once again, the second time, he's making a specific distinction between those who have come to faith in him, these have known you through me, and those who say, no, they don't know you. And he's saying, look, I'm praying for these. My care, my concern, my intercession is for these, not the ones who have rejected you. And uh, he goes on, verse 26, And I have declared to them your name, I will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, I in them. Jesus has perfectly known God throughout eternity. He's perfectly made God known through all, to all humanity. Those who know God know Jesus and know that Jesus was sent by God. Only Jesus can get anyone to God, and he has declared it plainly, and he declares it continually. Jesus declares our access to God. Jesus continues to declare the process of sanctification as we approach God. That's that phrase there, I have declared, and I will declare. I've, got, I've declared salvation, I've declared who you are, and these people have come to trust you. And now I continue to declare, here's how they walk with you. Here's how they process with you. The, here's the purpose of experiencing your love. Um, I want them to know that love. The, the same love, Father, you have loved me with, that's the love I want them to know, this supernatural divine love, as I continue to draw them closer and closer to you. And so he's, he's summing up and closing out this high priestly prayer Really, his last meaningful interaction 
with the disciples before his crucifixion. Now, after his, after his resurrection, there's going to be some very important interactions that occur again. But as far as meaningful interactions, times of teaching and exhortation, this is it. I mean, they're going to have a time in the garden together, but the disciples blow that off and miss it completely, you know. Um, and so this is, this is kind of the last thing. When, when looking at John 17 and you look at the prayer that Jesus prayed, when you specifically look at his followers in that prayer, be it the original disciples and the future believers, because a lot of what he prayed over those original disciples are intended to apply to us as well. When you apply all of the prayer that he prayed for others, you can sum it up this way. And this is not my summation. I, I uh, plagiarized this from a book. John MacArthur, in a commentary, summed up this prayer this way. Jesus prayed for the followers' preservation in verse 11, their jubilation, verse 13, their liberation in verse 15, their sanctification, verse 17, the unification in verse 21, their association in verse 24, and their glorification in verse 24. And so you see that Jesus prays over us the entirety of the gospel and our walk with God all the way to the point of entering heaven. So he has covered your life in prayer from coming to faith to entering glory. He did it in John 17. So, any other thoughts on John 17 there, Jimmy? Well, what we're going to do, we're going to pause right there. And next week, we're going to start chapter 18. And um, things are going to get tough. This is where we're going to see some uh, pretty tough events start taking place. This is kind of pretty much where he's handed the ministry. He's handed, hey, hey, it's time to grow up. Mm-hmm. It's time to walk. Well, now, you know, they're going to stumble a little bit. That happens. Yep, yep. We get that. But, Absolutely. You know, he's handing it over right here. Absolutely. And, and now we're charged to go make the Father's, known, Father's name known. Just like I continue to make it known, I put that responsibility to us. Very good. I like it. I like it. Well, we want to thank everyone who's tuned in online, everyone who's listening to the Long the Narrow Way podcast. Thank you for being with us. We're going to break from that broadcast so that we can have prayer time with everyone here at the church. We'd invite you to join with us personally any Wednesday night beginning at 630. We're here. You're welcome to come sit in with us and study with us. If you can't, keep tuning in. We appreciate that. So we'll catch y'all next week. You have been listening to Along the Narrow Way, hosted by Pastor Will Russell and co-hosted by Jimmy Miller. If you haven't done so, subscribe to the podcast so you can get updates on new episodes. Thank you for listening, and remember to stay faithful to walk along the narrow way with Jesus.